Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the situation in Kazakhstan, the expansion of Russia's frontiers, and some interesting statements made by the Swedish Supreme Commander. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Aung San Suu Kyi, the imprisoned uh, opposition in Myanmar, has been sentenced to four years in prison on accounts of breaking an an export-import law regarding walkie-talkies and radio communications, as well as for violating natural disaster management laws on COVID. Uh, Each of those charges were two years each, adding up to four. Uh, along with another sentence, but that's being served in accordance with the export-import law sentence. So that was an additional one year, but it's being served at the same continuously at the same time. So four years in total. Um, not quite what I was expecting. We, you know, when the military took control of the country, these weren't the charges I had in mind. You know. Uh, I was thinking something along the lines of election fraud, corruption, embezzlement, overthrow of government, you know, something along those lines, you know, but uh, I don't think this, I don't think these are the the sorts of charges you you overthrow a government for. I don't, maybe that's just me, but, uh, oh my goodness, it seems like a bit much, you know, the the military coming in, completely upsetting the fresh democratic institution that had been established in the country, um, for this, I don't think this is going to go well. I think we're looking at some interesting times ahead for Myanmar because I see um, basically every other time I brought up the mili- the situation in Myanmar where the military had taken power, I said it way back when they first took power that they needed a really good ad. Oh, goodness, I'm just so caught off guard. They they need they needed a really good excuse. As to why they did what they did. Uh, The military we're talking about here. They needed a really good reason. And this does not seem to be a good reason. We looked. The two aides to Sansuki. Were arrested. And we talked about that last week. And those are pretty minor offenses as well. And now the ringleader. Sansuki. Is. Sentenced to four years in jail. On over essentially a walkie-talkie and COVID laws. So, these are not the charges that are going to be easily justifiable to the population as to why you, the military, took control of the country. I'll just leave that on the table. Um, And I'll say that we are probably not done watching Myanmar. If this is what... If this is what they're bringing to the table, then there's probably something more. Uh, And by more, I mean the military is not going anywhere anytime soon. So now we wait to see uh, if the military in the country ups the ante and starts arresting more people on higher charges to, you know, sort of excuse themselves. Or perhaps they're just beginning and Suki being arrested isn't the end of this. I don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see. But either they're going to up the ante and find someone who is higher up in this and who is guilty of the charges that would justify the military taking power, or uh, we're going to have problems. 
and we'll also watch and see if the military releases their hold on power if this is the end. So, uh, we're probably not done with Myanmar, although it would seem that way with Suki's arrest and sentencing, but I don't think we're done with Myanmar. That's my hunch. In other news, West African nations have closed their border with Mali and have established economic sanctions on the country. Uh, this happens over a delay to elections in uh, Mali. So, a uh, similar situation to Libya, although less uh, extreme than what we see in Libya, because in Libya, the election is to end the war, and in Mali, the election is for the sake of the promise. Yeah, I don't think elections are going to end the war in Mali. And speaking of which, we mentioned that the French troops had pulled out, or at least I meant to mention it at some point in the past, but uh, the French troops had withdrawn their presence. I mean, let me rephrase that. The French have withdrawn their troop presence in Mali. They're still there, just in a lesser capacity. And interestingly enough, Russia stepped in with some of some troops of their own. So this is interesting. Uh, and I guess I'll get into that at a later point. We'll, we'll get into that when we talk about Russia explaining their horizons, as I feel that that'll flow better. But economic sanctions West African nations have imposed on Mali, and we'll see where things go here, especially given the war going on. I, I'd imagine this is not very helpful to the, to the, from the point of view of the Mali. Armenia and Azerbaijan have briefly traded fire across their border, including artillery shells. Uh, so far, uh, reports indicate that no one has died, although that could just be them covering up their losses. Never quite know with these two, but the fact that they haven't just exploded into all-out war is further indication that they are indeed on lockdown, even if uh, they would like to try not to be on lockdown. But I don't think either of them are looking for a fight with Russia right now. Uh, Japan has expended, has extended its support of the 50,000 U.S. troops in the country. It's extended this by an additional five years. Uh, the a U.K. warship and Russian submarine have gotten into a light collision. Sri Lanka and India have entered into a joint venture for uh, a restoration project of a colonial-era oil storage facility. Um, I believe these are facilities on Sri Lanka itself, and obviously the colonial power that built them was Britain, so these storage facilities were probably meant to service the British Royal Navy at some point in the past, and now they're restoring these storage facilities, probably for economic development. So, putting good making good use of things you already have uh, for better days ahead. India and... Well, uh, Sri Lanka and India are set to hold 51 and 49% of this joint venture, respectively. So that's 51% of this is going to be owned by Sri Lanka, 49% owned by India. Uh, we'll see if these numbers fluctuate over time, but that's what it looks like. China has appointed a special envoy for the Horn of Africa. And North Korea has reportedly launched hypersonic missiles which they are now being criticized by the world over. Uh, but nothing much done, as is usually the case with North Korea. But that's the rapid-fire news, and we'll get into the meat in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start it off with Kazakhstan. So, Kazakhstan, a country most people don't talk about very often, but I do bring up every now and then when talking about Russia and their sphere of influence, they have gotten very interesting uh, and very fast. Well, to most people who aren't observing this region of the world anyway. And here's, uh, I guess I'll give you the short version of this story. The attempted overthrow of the, the uh, Kazakh government has failed. That's the short story. Now, here's the longer version of the story. 
earlier last week, the Kazakh government removed price controls on the liquid natural gas. This is a, a fuel that due to the heavy subsidies that were placed on it before, had become the most commonly used and most preferred fuel in the country. The removal of the price controls, however, was sudden rather than gradual. So even if, so even though this was probably going to be good for their economy in the long run, because they did the change so quickly, they had a sudden negative effect, and it hurt. So what you got instead of, you know, a, a non, how I say, distorted market, you got a sudden doubling of the fuel prices virtually overnight. And naturally, that's going to cause ripple effects in an economy. That's going to cause people to be very upset uh, because everyone has to use fuel. I mean, just look at the United States. People are upset over here because gas is 350 <laughs> when it was like two something just a couple years ago. It's 350 now and people are upset. And that's not even a doubling, let alone a doubling overnight. So in Kazakhstan, that's exactly what you have. The fuel prices doubled basically overnight. And this is what initially sparked the protesting. <laughs> but, oh, excuse me. But the protests were immediately hijacked by more radical forces in the country. The protests turned to violent riots, and government buildings and police vehicles were attacked, and in many cases burned by the rioters. Some reports indicate that around 164 people have died during the violence and the unrest. Various arms depots across the country were also attacked, as well as the Almaty Airport. Very strange target for people upset about fuel prices, but um, I'll continue. And upon closer inspection of these protesters and rioters, it was found that the rioters were well-armed, well-trained, and well-organized. Many of them weren't Kazakh citizens or Kazakh at all and were funded by foreign money. So all of this chaos and confusion on the part of the people, you know, who found this out, uh, it essentially culminated in the swift decision of Kazakhstan's president, Kasim Tokayev. Uh, he made the decision to call a virtual meeting of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization a.k.a. Russian NATO. And it was here where he requested military assistance from his allies, which includes Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. He called for his allies, uh, specifically military assistance, and his request was very, just as swiftly, approved. And a peacekeeping force of around 5,000 troops predominantly Russian, have been mobilized and deployed to Kazakhstan. This force included uh, armored units, lots of them in fact, and Russian paratroopers, all of which have been deployed throughout Kazakhstan with pretty impressive speed. Kazakhstan, uh, for their part, after a brief panic attack and after being reassured by their allies, Kazakhstan deployed its own military to key points in cities across the country. Since then, the unrest has largely uh, been put down, although pockets of resistance are still holding out, uh, but those dwindle by the moment. As of now, nearly 8,000 people have been arrested, although uh, I had to revise the number up because the number I was looking at went up later that night when I was putting the episode together from around 6,000 to the around 8,000. So uh, at that rate, we're probably looking at nine to 10,000 who probably been arrested as of me recording this episode. So pretty large numbers of people. I mean, Kazakhstan for its size isn't very populated. It has, I believe around 
18 million people, I believe. So, this is a lot for them. But, out of all this, uh, there's more to take away than just a conflict between the forces of order and the forces of, well, whatever's behind this violence, really. And I, in particular, have three takeaways that I have, you know, well, uh, taken away from this situation. Number one, Central Asia is, in fact, on lockdown. As I have suspected since the debacle in Afghanistan, where the U.S. pulled out uh, in the messiest way possible, creating the fear that there were going to be millions of migrants pouring over the border into the Central Asian republics en route to Russia, and Russia wasn't having any of that. So what Russia did when the Taliban won the war in Afghanistan was they rallied the former Soviet republics in Central Asia who had a border with Afghanistan, so that'd be Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. They rallied those three and cut a deal where Russian troops would help them patrol their southern borders with Afghanistan, effectively pushing out the Russian frontier to the Afghan border in a stunning move. And it was from that point on that I came to the conclusion that Central Asia was on lockdown. And now I feel that I've been proven correct, or at least uh, I'm more right now than I was back then, as Russia has now enlarged their troop presence in every Central Asian Republic, all five of them, that's Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, uh, although maybe an exception can be made for Turkmenistan, as information on whether or not Russia's patrolling the patrolling their border with Afghanistan is a bit shaky um but I wouldn't put it past them you know would not put it past Russia to find a way to do that I mean it's well I, I it's my belief that they are even though the the information is a bit shaky on this one but that's Turkmenistan, but if we look at the broader the broader theme here, the broader trend, it's reasonable to assume that there's probably Russian troops on Turkmenistan's border with Afghanistan. Meaning, if all five of these Central Asian republics now have troop presences, Russian troop presences, and enlarged troop presences at that. So, that's my first takeaway, is that this Central Asia is on lockdown, and that lockdown gets tighter by the moment, but still consensual. That's that's uh, a really important feature in all of this. When people when people talk about oh Russia's basically trying to assert control or Putin's trying to do this and that, it's really important I feel to emphasize that Kazakhstan asked for Russia to come in. Now, you can say what you will about how the Russians have and the Kazakh government have responded to some of the more peaceful of the protesters, uh, rather as opposed to the riots. And we'll just make that distinction there. As there is a distinction to be made. You can say what you will about a foreign government putting down unrest in Kazakhstan because that's, if we break it down, that's what it is. But it's important, I, very important, I feel, to recognize that Kazakhstan asked for Russia and the CSTO to come in. And Russia did. This is an alliance network. And I, I feel, because I watched a good number of videos on this subject from other people and news agencies covering the topic, very few, 
you know, really put a decent emphasis on the fact that this is an alliance network. The CSTO. And that this is, it's, it's an international organization and an international framework that Russia is operating in. And it's fully consensual. But I feel that gets lost in the the fear-mongering against Russia, which has created the Eastern question that uh, I guess I'll be getting into even later on in the episode. But those are some crucial facts about this situation that in my brief research of the other people covering this topic and, and news outlets and whatnot, is that it gets glossed over. So I'll just use my time here to emphasize that because I do believe it's important for understanding what we're dealing with here we're dealing with what I have laid out actually the consensual occupation by Russia of the former Soviet republics and the former Soviet republics being okay with it again it's consensual and this is how Russia is expanding through the consensual occupation of their former territories. And it's a pretty smart way to go about it. I mean, if they fight you back, you know, it's, it defeats the purpose. But if they let you in, or in Kazakhstan's case, and in the case of Armenia and Azerbaijan, if they invite you in, and Belarus did this as well, if they invite you in, well, you get to stay. You get to stay, and they won't fight you. <laughs> it's important to emphasize that they won't fight you back point. And I feel silly for saying it so many times, but that's important. This is how Russia has expanded so much so quickly. I mean, just think about the rate of their expansion. It was, what, Crimea and a little bit of Ukraine in 2014? And then nothing for six ye- for almost six years. And then a war breaks out in the Caucasus. You get that. And Afghanistan ends in a messy way. You get that. You already had Georgia in 2008. And now, what does that leave? It, the Caucasus are on lockdown. Central Asia is on lockdown. Belarus is on lockdown. That only leaves Ukraine. That's that's it. Ukraine is the only other loose end that isn't accounted for uh, as the Baltic trio of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are part of NATO. Ukraine is all that's left. And what that means is when the U.S. and Russia meets in a couple weeks, I believe, Either, either next week or the, the week after that. Uh, the date eludes me right now. But when the two sides meet, people are assuming that Russia is going to have a lot on their plate. I, I beg to differ. Sure, they're going to have a variety of things on their plate, but they're, it's like a fancy restaurant. Everything's small on that plate. <laughs> Except for Ukraine. Which means Russia is going to be able to focus... On Ukraine, they've already laid down their red lines. They've already said basically they want they want a restraining order basically on NATO, and they're not going to compromise on that. So, I think they're heading into these negotiations from a position of great strength. When you look at how far Russia's frontiers have expanded. Courtesy of the consensual occupation. The consensual occupation of the Caucasus in Central Asia and Belarus. Ukraine is going to be able to get all of Russia's attention, for better or worse, you know, depending on where you stand on that issue. It's a tragedy. It could be great. But this is where we are now. So, uh... That, that's my little, a little much for my first takeaway. Uh, so I, I sort of went off on a 
tangent away from the first takeaway, but takeaway is Central Asia is on lockdown. Russia now has a stronger geostrategic position, and China is okay with this. And all that's another takeaway. Uh, well, actually, that's my second takeaway. Because if there was any doubt before this as to who was really in control, China or Russia, there can be no question anymore. The answer is Russia. Uh, the Belt and Road is great, but boots on the ground, facts on the ground are always going to be better, at least in the short term. But I guess it's fair to ask the question, why? Because it's not like Kazakhstan is an inconsequential piece of the Belt and Road. In fact, they're a very important piece of the Belt and Road, almost as important as Pakistan and Russia. So, why would China be okay with this? Well, I mean, sure, they have a strategic partnership with Russia, but this is their this is their project of a century that we're talking about here. So, why would they be okay with this? And when you look at it, it's because it's in their interest for Russia to let the Russians do this. When we think of the Belt and Road, we think of some a grand geostrategic uh, ambition. And while that's a part of it, it's ultimately, for the most part, and emphasis on for the most part, it's an economic project. It's an economic investment. And what are the things you need? Well, what are the things that an, an investment needs before you commit your money to it? What are the things you want? You're going to want security, stability, and order for the long term. For the long term. Now, that's what you want. Because what you don't want is to invest and then have your, your investment destroyed because of political appeal. That's the last thing you want. And these are some big ticket items. I mean, we're talking railways, roads, airports, ports. These are, these are some big ticket items. New headquarters for organizations. New capital buildings. Dams. Locks. It's, it's a lot. These are really big ticket items, things you would really appreciate not being destroyed due to political unrest in a country that you've invested all this stuff in. And Kazakhstan is one of the flagship members of the Belt and Road. So why would China be okay with letting Russia control it? Or with Russia having more influence than China, who is the origin point of the Belt and Road. Well, again, it goes back to security, stability, and order. Russia is anal about security, stability, and order, especially on its borderlands. So by stepping back and letting the Russians do what they do best in areas that they care the most about because no one cares more about Central Asia than Russia and I'd argue they they care more about Central Asia than Central Asia does <laughs> but by letting them do this China gets what they want security stability and order look at how fast this unrest has been been put down and I would say this attempted overthrow of the Kazakh government look how fast it's been derailed and put down and with a minimum of troops with the consensual invitation to come in why go through the fire of sending your own troops in uninvited when you can let your strategic partner russia do it for you and instead of pissing off your ally because that's a china and russia borderline that's what they borderline are instead of pissing off your ally let them do what they do best in the area they care the most about establish security stability and order on russia's borderlands 
and this is China's western borderland too, so they also benefit from security, stability, and order. And if Russia's going to foot the bill for it, then great, we can just focus on the economic projects and Russia can have their sphere of influence. So, takeaway one, well, takeaway two, I should say, Russia is the dominant force in Central Asia, and the, the footnote to that takeaway is China's okay with this. It is in their interest as well as it is in Russia's, which further indicates my belief that this is going to be a long-term thing between Russia and China. There are some people who, when they talk on this issue, speak of the Sino-Soviet split happening, but sure no alliance lasts forever. I'd say this has at least a decade in it. Uh, because of, you know, who their opponents are, and the fact that they're being pressed in from opposite directions, so they're being pushed together, so they're not going to fight where they don't have to. And quite frankly, they have very few regions that they would fight. I mean, if they're not going to fight over Central Asia, then I, they're not going to they're not going to be fighting each other. That's just that. So, this was an important moment uh, in determining who held the cards in Central Asia, and it's Russia. Which means China's focus, as far as where it's committed to, must be in different directions. And those directions are probably Africa and Taiwan. So that's, a, that's my second takeaway from this. Russia is the dominant force in Central Asia. But the third takeaway uh, is a, a bit more dark, you know. If there was a war between Ukraine and Russia, Russia would win with speed that makes Blitzkrieg look obsolete. Because when you compare the sizes of Ukraine and Kazakhstan, and look at the distance between the Russian border and their major population centers, Russia has to go much farther to get to Almaty, Keitzel Orda, or Shymkent in Kazakhstan then they would have to go to get to Kiev, Odessa, or Dnipro in Ukraine. And again, the Russian boots were deployed almost as fast as the protests broke out. Well, almost as fast as they turned rioting. Uh, riotous. So, even if we account for the fact that Ukraine would be a hostile, uh, a very, very hostile nation, Whereas Kazakhstan invited them in, we're still talking incredible speeds, incredible distances, and incredible logistics. Russia's military is specializing in far-flung logistics right now. Uh, well, not far-flung logistics, but medium-range logistics, where you're going a couple hundred miles away from your own border, and you're still able to properly supply yourself. Those are the kinds of logistics that are going to be greatly useful in the event that they have to put their foot down in Ukraine. So, if this is how fast they can put down unrest in Kazakhstan, I would care to venture, as I, I guess I already have, that they could probably, they could probably pull off a similar feat against the Ukrainian military, especially since the bulk of it is almost on Russia's border, um, the contact line between the breakaway republics in U eastern Ukraine and the Ukrainian army is very close to the Russian border. It wouldn't take much to encircle them. Like, it, it, they're in a very precarious situation uh, when you look at the map and see that Russia basically has them on three sides. It's dangerous and their military will be destroyed very quickly. So that's takeaway number three. Um, and I guess we'll talk about the expansion of Russia's frontiers. Because in the former Soviet space, they have the consensual occupation. 
And in the case of Syria, they have an ally. But Mali is new. Well, maybe it's not new. Maybe they were there during the Cold War. I'm not as versed in my Cold War Russian history. But that is a very interesting thing and a very interesting place for them to be putting troops in. Mali, of all places. But uh, they're expanding their frontiers. And I'd imagine that they're probably, probably looking for uh, new friends, I guess. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what Russia is seeking to gain by putting troops in, in Mali. I'm not, I'll, I'll just be frank with you. But uh, it wanted, it led me to a point that I wanted to make with regards to imperial expansion. And I, I guess I should rephrase this from Russian expanding their frontiers to the clash of empires and how it works. Because Russia putting their troops in Mali happened immediately after France pulled a lot of their troops out. So one imperial power steps out, another one steps in. And that's an important thing for us to understand as we move into an era where we're going to be dealing with great power competitions in a multipolar world, not just a U.S.-led world or a U.S. and Russian-led world or a U.S. and China-led world that most people think we're going into, but instead a world where you have America, France, Spain, Britain, Russia, Iran, Turkey, China, Japan, India, where you have lots of different poles of power that are competing in different regions because they have different interests. And many people fear that if the United States doesn't confront China, they're going to go rule the world. And I routinely dismiss this routinely because the nature of great power conflicts everybody has their own interests and every country has their own spheres of interest places that they were going that they're going to try to intervene in whenever situations devolve or when the opportunity presents itself france for france it is west africa and before that it was the americas but they can do without the americas for britain it's their commonwealth. The colonies that they settled rather than just took over, the, the white settler societies, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and at probably South Africa as well, due to geography, these are places that they are going to be interested in. There's places that they're going to try to be involved in. Although South Africa, for now, appears to be off the radar, but we'll see if that remains the case. For Russia, it's their borderlands. They almost never have secure borders, so having even less secure borders right now means that they're going to be heavily involved in what goes on in the world around them, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus, in Eastern Europe. For China, it's Asia and East Africa. So all these different zones and i guess we can add iran to this they have the middle east all these different zones all these different spheres of influence no one's gonna rule the world because no one imperial center is gonna be able to conquer all the others and the uniqueness of america's position was that was not that we conquered them all it certainly didn't conquer the soviets it was that the other imperial powers destroyed themselves and then we stepped into the gap so the rise of america as a superpower globally rather than just the power that shows up kicks ass and goes home that was facilitated precisely due to the forces that are now being ignored when talking of u.s china relations the forces of the rise and fall of powers and the constant motion of international politics. It was the fall of 
the French Empire, the German Empire, and the decline, the accelerated decline of the British Empire that invited in uh, the American influence and the devastation of the Japanese Empire and the collapse of that empire. Four imperial centers brought down enabled the era of American preeminence because of how far-reaching those imperial centers had already gone. Britain, France, and Japan combined owned huge swaths of the globe, especially Britain and France. So, with all these powers gone from the equation, you have a massive vacuum that allows America to become the, sem the global hegemon, with the exception of Russia, and that too. Russia moves into Eastern Europe. Russia is able to expand their influence in Asia and parts of Africa and attempt at the Middle East. But that was because of the fall of the other imperial powers. But they too were not able to rule the world. And we were not able to rule the world. Even when there were only two countries that mattered. So... I do not believe that any one country is going to rule the world because the world is not one-dimensional. It's a very complex world where there's lots and lots of moving pieces. You can look at any, any three, but you're never going to be able to get the full picture of who wants what and who's willing to do what and then who does what. Because the fall of one empire opens the door to other empires to step in. And it opens the door to someone new to come up out of nowhere. Nobody would have expected the Spanish and the Portuguese to become the first global empires, but they did. They did. Nobody, nobody thought about that. That wasn't even a possibility for most people. But they did it. No one would have imagined that the Dutch would have risen to global preeminence as well. But they did. So, this idea of if we don't stop, say, China, they're going to rule the world. Just looking at the situation with Mali, where one imperial power steps back, not even out, just back, and another power steps in, France and Russia, France steps back, Russia steps in, that tells you everything you need to know. Especially with regards to the potential future of Africa. If Russia's in on the take in a landlocked country, Mali, Africa's got a rough future in front of it. Uh, the vast majority of Africa, anyway. Some countries might win. A lot of them are going to lose. So, there's uh, the, I guess, the unofficial fourth takeaway from all the things going on here. But, um, yes. But now... We'll get on to our final subject, and that is an update on the Eastern question. So let's get into this. Uh, last week, General Michael Biden, I don't know if he's Biden or Biden, his name is B-Y-D-E-N. If it's Biden, that's very uh, ironic, given the <laughs> current administration in America. But uh, last week, General Michael Biden, I'm going to say Biden so we don't get confused, um, he is the supreme commander of the Swedish Armed Forces, and last week he made some very interesting and, from my point of view, irking statements. He states that the United States should significantly beef up its presence in Europe if the conflict between Russia and Ukraine escalates. Then he said if the situation would worsen, I do believe it would be good to have a bigger footprint. And he then went on to say, because you have bases in Europe, it's not like you're not there. It's more like reinforce what you have. More people, more capabilities. My response? Wow. And to think just last episode, I talked about my conclusion that I'd come to about the U.S. foreign policy being dictated by the needs of other countries, which itself is more of an offshoot from my larger conclusion in the anniversary episode where I talked about the U.S. and the U.S. alliance system. 
and there are differences and why the things America does doesn't make sense. It's because we're not pursuing American interests, and, or let alone core American interests. But this... Um, how do I put it? This is probably better, I would say. I, I, I could put it better, you know? Uh, I'm pretty proud of my anniversary episode. But the fact that he's the Swedish Supreme Commander probably means that him saying it is better. You know? Just because of... Just off of who he is. Uh, a foreigner who is essentially making foreign policy decisions for America. And that says more than I ever could. Now, I can... I can lay it out to you in a two-hour-long podcast episode, or he can give it to you in about a, a couple minutes. Oh, I guess I'll take the couple minutes. <laughs> but that's what this is. And when you, when you break it down, you know, he's a foreigner who's making foreign policy decisions for America. And unfortunately for me, your friendly neighborhood isolationist, there's probably going to be people in Washington and the Pentagon who agree with him more than they'd agree with me, even though I'm right. And we're probably going to see some increase in troop presence, especially if the talks between America and Russia go south. Um, because if they go south, which it is increasingly feared that they will, although the fears are coming from the situation in Kazakhstan on the eve of these talks, rather than the strengthening of Russia's geostrategic position, which strangely flies over the head of most analysts and news agencies. Uh, maybe they're just deliberately not seeing it. Maybe I'm crazy, but I do believe Russia's position is getting stronger, and the same goes for China. Their positions are getting stronger, and so they are then able to make not just red line statements, but demands of NATO to stop expanding towards their border. Because that, that's a reversal. That's, that's not just defensive. That is counter-offensive, saying, look, you're, we want you to sign this restraining order here, saying that you're not going to keep pushing up on our border. You don't do that when you're in a position of weakness. You just say, this is my red line, don't cross it. That, that's what you would do if you were in a weaker position. When you're in a stronger position, however, you go the extra step and say, not only is this my red line and you're not allowed to cross, I want you to sign a contract, a legally binding contract saying you're not going to cross this line. There's a difference there. It's a not-so-subtle difference, but there's a difference. And Russia's in the second category where they're making this demand, which you can't do when you're in a position of weakness. Uh, they're in a strengthening geostrategic position. And again... Takeaway number two from the situation in Kazakhstan, Russia is the dominant force in Central Asia. Central Asia is on lockdown. So if the Caucasus are on lockdown, and Central Asia is now definitively on lockdown, and Belarus isn't going anywhere, that leaves Ukraine. Russia can focus all their attention on Ukraine. So, if these talks go south, which is probably the case unless it is the u.s and nato side that make concessions and it's really just u.s because nato isn't in talks and they're probably gonna either go nowhere or go south but in light of the fact that we're coming up on these talks we have the swedish supreme commander saying the america needs to beef up its troop presence in Europe. Why would you do that? If there's a war in Ukraine, Ukraine isn't a NATO ally. 
So why would you do that? Why would why would America need to beef up its troop presence in the defense of a country who isn't a part of this alliance? And quite frankly, isn't going to be a part of this alliance, which is what I find it strange that we don't make that so-called concession. I don't see how it's a concession. We don't have it. We, we don't have Ukraine. We can't give it up. And we're not going to have Ukraine, as is evident by the dragging of feet when it comes to putting Ukraine into NATO. Because it's not like they've only just now begun talk of Ukraine being a part of NATO. This has been going on for a while. But they haven't been allowed to join. NATO's dragging its feet. So, if Ukraine was just not going to be a part of NATO anyway, and Russia wants us to guarantee on paper that we're not going to try to push into Ukraine or expand into Ukraine, well, it seems to me like that is the easiest, simplest, and most meaningful agreement that can be made. If you want de-escalation, there you go. So it, it seems strange to me, like, it seems, it's strange that that's not the, the, that's not the thing that's being done here. It's, it's so easy. It's so simple. All you have to do is say that you're not going to do something that you've already determined you're not going to do, which is add Ukraine to NATO. But every time Russia asks, uh, you get people in NATO getting all pissy and going, Russia doesn't get to have a veto. And it's like, that's not helpful. It's very strange. I'll just say that much. But even stranger, we have calls for an increase of U.S. troop presence. Which, off the merits of him saying this, uh, irks me. Is Also, a point that I make, which is that we haven't left, and people always advocate getting troops out of these places but then when it comes time to you know get the bring the troops home people actually don't want the troops to come home it's yeah you know it's a bit it's a bit weird you know it's very weird i i can't get upset at it all the time when i have i just have to recognize how weird it is but very strange things afoot and <laughs> excuse me I'd say suspicious. Again, Ukraine's not a member of NATO. Why would we need to increase our troop presence in Europe, even if the situation got worse in Ukraine? Ukraine's not a NATO member. We have no obligation to protect them. And that's just, that's just a fact. So, not quite sure why the Supreme Commander of Sweden is calling for this, or why he's chosen this specific moment to say these things. But, uh, again, I'll reiterate, there are probably plenty of people in Washington and the Pentagon who agree with him more than they'd agree with me. And again, even though I'm right. But alas, I must remain your humble observer so that I may bring you one of the great commodities of our modern times. Decently accurate news. But <laughs> that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, say adios.